3, 2, 1, roll the footage! That was Welcome awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was back. not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back, everybody, to the Strategy Sprints podcast. I'm your host, Simon Severino, and my guest today is the director of marketing at Empire Flippers. He's currently working on bringing digital assets acquisition into the mainstream. Welcome, everybody, Greg Elfrink. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I, I really appreciate being able to come on here. Sorry, sorry, it's so dark here. I'm in Vietnam, so it's like 11 p.m. here. So I did my best with the lights. Hopefully, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but you can speak loud enough not to wake up anybody. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, my wife, uh, she knows I'm always up late. I'm always working USA hours for the most part. So, <laughs> all right, and we will talk content strategy in the context of the funnel where most people use just as a tiny part of it and how to use more of it. We are excited. Uh, but first, what are you currently creating? Yeah, so man, a lot. <laughs> so uh, we just launched our, uh, the big thing we just created actually that there were now finally getting to do the marketing uh, part of it is our industry report. So that details, I think it was 884 businesses we analyzed over three years that sold on our marketplace. It's it's a big one. It's like 100 plus pages of analysis that we release every year. Uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time this quarter writing it. So I'm very excited that it's now being able to get into people's hands. And it's, it's great because uh, that thing, that report, um, unlike other people in our industry, it doesn't use any scraped data. It uses like our actual data. So we're able to show people the sales prices of these businesses we're selling, how, how long they've been on the market, what kind of deal structures are in place, earnouts, all that good stuff. So I'm very excited we finally got that out of the way because <laughs> it is a beast to write. But uh, yeah, that, that was a big one we were working on. Bunch of other stuff too, but that's probably the biggest one recently. And what you're sharing today with us is content strategy done right let's start with what what the typical mistakes are sure uh so like i mentioned offline to you i think most marketers this is especially true if you're just starting your company and someone tells you you should do seo you should write content all that stuff right sounds good on paper but like i need money now and that's a, a usually when people think of content marketing they're like it's going to take six to 12 months. And that's if you're lucky, right? If it works. <laughs> and there's some truth to that. But uh, I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. There's all sorts of ways you can use content in a fast manner while at the same time building up that long-term strategy, that snowball of inbound marketing. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. Uh, I could go into one if you want, unless you have a, a follow-up question to it. We want to hear every single way of making money fast <laughs> with content. Let's start with yeah, the first yeah. one. So uh, th this is so this is very common in B two B where people do uh, cold email outreach, right? Like the especially SaaS businesses are trying to find the product market fit, all, all that kind of stuff. So what I always tell people, like you can make content go fast if you are writing content you know that solves pain right away. So. Uh, what you could do is create what I call dark content. So dark content is where, you, so you have a small sales team or maybe you're doing the sales and you're finding out you're having to repeat the answer over or repeat the answer to a certain question over and over and over again. So most people don't 
I mean, most people you're talking to probably have that exact same question, but they might not be asking that. So it's like a hidden obstacle that you don't get to interact with on every call or every cold email you're doing. And what you can do is take this piece of dark content. I call it dark content because once you answer the question, no one has access to your answer. So you might have like the sales guy that gives you amazing wisdom uh, and then it's lost forever because it's not published anywhere, right? It's dark content. Mm -hmm. So you bring that dark content to light either through a, your, you know, all your traditional content means like a blog post, video, uh, maybe a, a podcast of some sort, right? And now you can use this <clears throat> in all of your outreach. You know, uh, when you do your outreach, you could say, hey, look, uh, I talk to a lot of people every single day. They always have this problem. I actually wrote a blog post on how to fix that problem. Let me know if you like that uh, and I can send it over to you and I would love to talk, right? So that puts you in a different position right away where you are pro like, you're not like, I wouldn't recommend like sending the link out in the first email because that'll like spam you. But you say, hey, I have this piece of content. It, it, I know this is a problem a lot of people in my target market run into. And now you're already giving them value, but you're still forcing them to say yes, right? Like you know, on that yes ladder, like, yes, okay. So this is a way you can use content in a way that can be very fast. Uh, and there's other ways you can use content too that have nothing to do with inbound that is extremely effective. So another, another story uh, that we actually did personally <clears throat> led to, uh, at this point it's probably led to hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> with us, or not hundreds, but tens of millions at least. Uh, and th that's this uh, uh, joke. So when I first joined up with Empire Flippers, when someone wanted to buy a business, there was this thing called winning the wire race we always joked about. And basically that is, there's two buyers, they both want business A. So they both send in their bank wire to buy business A, and one of them gets in like a minute before the other one. So our process was whoever's bank wire hits us first gets the deal in that case, right? So this guy over here gets the business, this guy's like, what, but I sent you the money, why don't I have the business, right? Well, the wire got in late. So we always joked internally about this calling, uh, winning the wire race. And we would actually start telling our clients, like, you can just deposit money with us, so that way you don't have to do the wire raise, you'll win it because it's just instantaneously if it's credit on file. So this is another example of dark content. Our sales team is telling people this, but there's no like resource or the general knowledge, uh, general public to know about this, right? So I wrote a little article, I think it was like less than a thousand words, and that be became a huge uh, selling point that was selling for us automatically over and over and over again that led to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of credit on file with us to sell businesses because now people knew how to beat the wire raise. I took that piece of dark content and made it a big piece, but from an inbound perspective, and this is why I say people uh, lose out on a third of the power of content marketing because they're just focusing on SEO, how do I drive traffic, all that kind of stuff. Like no one is Googling searching like, how do I win the wire race? Or if they are, they're probably not talking about what I'm talking about, right? So this is an example of how you can use content deeper in the funnel uh, to speed everything else up that you're doing, which a lot of people don't view content in that way. And, and even if you are just thinking about SEO, we had the the guru of SEO here on the show, Stefan Spencer. Shout out, Stefan. And he he said, even if you're thinking just in terms of narrowing just SEO, you always have to write, like you are saying, to, in order to solve a pain and uh, in order to really create value and create solution. Because otherwise, Google is is smart enough to see that you are just listing out <laughs> a, a a number of keywords that sounds like right. a you know a, a lexicon, but it doesn't sound like <laughs> you would write for somebody that you really care about. And uh, and and Google is smart enough nowadays 
to differentiate that and they check also that it is read it is it they check for the user experience a hundred percent. Yeah. Too, too many people write for robots and not for humans. So I feel like there's a certain subset of SEOs that have lost all of their copywriting skill over the years of writing these articles and they rank and they wonder why they're not making any money. Like, yeah, okay, cool. You're ranked number one, maybe, but no one understands what you're talking about. It's written in such a weird way, you know, it's so awkward. Well, so of course, all it's the bots love you, but no human wants to <laughs> yeah, work with yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. No one, no one with wallets are like reading your content <laughs> to buy your product. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm so curious who you pick for the strategy award after one word from our sponsors. Hey, if you like the tools, go grab them for free at strategysprints.com slash tools. You can only pick one person when everybody's zigging, this person is zagging. Who do you pick? So uh, I thought about this actually, and I disagree with some of the stuff he does, but I have to say he's awesome and he's a good friend of mine. And I, I actually hit him up every now and then when I have problems and sometimes he solves them, sometimes we disagree. <laughs> and that's Tim Solo at, over at HRF. So he's a good buddy of mine. And uh, you know his competitors, they spend a ton on paid marketing and he doesn't really at all. Like he, he does a little bit, but he does a lot of stuff that people would find counterintuitive in marketing and he does a really good job at it. Uh, he's fantastic at building communities, uh, even though he doesn't like believe in email marketing, which I, even I disagree on the email marketing stuff. But yeah, he, he definitely is a, a zagger more than a zigger for sure. Beautiful. And they're doing really great work. Oh yeah, they're awesome company. If you if, I, if the audience is into SEO, there's, there's the non-sponsored plug for Ahrefs. It's a great tool. I, I I am a big fan. We use we use many tools, uh, so we are not so much just into their tool. But it's amazing the value that it that it gives, and and most people I know rely heavily on exactly that tool. So, yeah, what are the three books that shaped you most? Yeah. Um... So the three books that shaped me the most, I, I'm a, a big literature nerd. So not all of these are business books, but uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. So if anyone out there is a fan of No Country for Old Men, the movie is the same guy who wrote that uh, or The Road. A very dark story, but very fascinating uh, literature. In terms of business, and this is slightly a business book, but uh, The Richest Man in Babylon. I think that is a fantastic personal finance book. And it gives you, there, there's a like a solid business lesson in that book. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever read it, but there's like a scene where the guy saves up the money to start investing. And he invests in this like Phoenician gem seller. And the guy who's teaching him everything, he's like, well, do you know anything about gems? He's like, no, but it sounded like a great deal. He's like, well, come back to me in two years when you have your money saved up again after losing it all, right? And it's just a fantastic book of simple wisdom that I think is, just good. Uh, it's a really good book. Uh, the third one is is much more in the vein of business in terms of like networking and building relationships. And it's a classic. Uh, it's How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Like I actually used that book when I was uh, I was 19. I hitchhiked across America uh, just for fun. Uh, I, I got inspired by the movie Into the Wild. And uh, that book actually used it while I was uh, hitchhiking, like, wow, this really works. This is amazing. <laughs> so I highly recommend that book for uh, anyone that wants to get better at networking with people. Super cool. One thing you have recently changed your mind about. Recently. Um, 
email automation actually. So I guess Tim mm -hmm. wins a little bit, wins a little bit on his arguments with me on it. So this is something we are starting to do now. Um, so originally when I built the email funnels for Empire Flippers, I made them so they go as long as the longest sell cycle of our customer that took the longest to buy. Because my thought was like, if I do that, I could speed up the sell cycle. And I did, it did speed up our sell cycle. Uh, but now that I'm looking back on it, it is a very inelegant system because it's so difficult to update and change. So we're actually moving away from automated emails almost altogether and focusing more on broadcast specific to like specific audiences in our CRM. Like I don't have the data to say this is more effective, but I, I feel like it's going to be. Uh, we'll know more next year, of course, but that's something I've changed my opinion on. Oh, that's a big step. How how long was the cycle in total? <laughs> it's very long. I wrote a lot of emails. Uh, if, if you went through every step of the funnel, because you know there's like yes and no turns, it's super complicated. We use HubSpot, so if you can imagine how complicated HubSpot Enterprise is, yes, it's that it was that complicated, right? Uh, so basically, it was three. I think three hundred. No, it was four hundred thirty-five days. Uh, so if you went through every single email, I created enough content for 435 days. Now that's not an email every single day. Uh, some parts of the funnel it is based off your actions because like I tried to promote something throughout, right? Uh, so yeah, 435 days. Uh, so we'll be getting rid of most of that. And I think most people who like our content are gonna be overjoyed. They're not getting slammed by emails from me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what was the, the reason? Was the open rate going down or the click rate going down? So it's interesting. Uh, our best customers, they will go onto the email list up to a certain point and then they become our customers and they just unsubscribe, right? Because they don't need the automated follow-ups or anything like that. <clears throat> and I have customer emails too that go on for like, uh, not every day, but it went on for like six, eight months out because a lot of times our sellers will become buyers and our buyers after a year will become sellers, right? So I want to, you know, stay in touch with them. Uh, but the reason why they unsubscribe is because if they are a fan of us, they are always on our website. So there's like, I don't need to remind them. They are like sold. They're like one of the beautiful things. And I, I think like, I feel like we're the only ones like this in the M&A broker space. We have like legitimate super fans like around the world that like love who we are, love our communities. We've built our marketing, our content, all that kind of stuff. So like, they don't need an automated email to remind them, right? So I think they would be better served with like a more targeted email based off of the data they've given us to give them more content that they prefer, that they want more. So, do they do they physically like hang out on the website or in a community a Facebook group or whatever? But yeah, everywhere. So a lot of groups in our space, uh, a lot of B2B groups on Facebook, especially in our business. Uh, but they're always scrolling through our marketplace, looking at new businesses, unlocking businesses. Uh, they're looking, their businesses are in sell, uh, you know, in our vetting process, because most digital entrepreneurs, they tend to have like two to three profitable projects at any given time. We're, we're just naturally distracted, I guess. Uh, so like they might sell one and you know a couple months later, they put the next one in there and so on. And now they have a bit of capital. So now they're unlocking businesses that they might want to buy and scale up instead of starting something from scratch. So yeah, they hang out on our website quite a lot and they're always talking about us in various groups. So, What do you see working in terms of getting a better price? What can... What can people do right before they put it on the platform to get a better price? 
Excellent question. And that's a, that's a very long answer because there's a lot of things. Uh, the biggest thing, and this is going to sound very obvious, but the biggest thing if you want a better multiple is increase your net profit, right? But you don't want to make the ma mistake a lot of sellers make when you're doing this. So they think, okay, I want to increase my net profit dramatically. What's the easiest way to do it? I know I will let go of all my employees, which is a terrible thing to do because now you're taking like a three hour a week uh, business or maybe a 10 hour a week business. And now it's become a 40, 60 hour a week business. And when you go to sell that business, yes, technically your valuation will be higher, but your business will be far less attractive. And the buyer is probably going to discount you and use the logic like, hey, I'm going to need to hire a team. So he's going to factor that into the sales price anyway. So you don't get like any benefit from this. So I always tell sellers, the best thing you can do, lift up your net profit, but rem remember thinking about how attractive your business is. And if you want something that's like super, super simple to remind yourself of to get make your business worth the most possible is ask yourself, am I the least valuable person in this business? That's what you want to be. Because if you sell the business and you're the least valuable person in that organization, that means you have a very attractive business for a buyer, right? I'm curious about your perspective. Uh, I, I get pitched businesses a lot and I, I always look for the NPS. I say, show me your NPS score. And they go like, hey, nobody's asking me this. I don't have the NPS. <laughs> and that's a very bad sign for me. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm seeing that increasingly it is becoming a metric that is used, especially in the US. Uh, What's your what's your take? How do you how do you find out? How do you measure and in tangible terms that their customers are really happy? It's that is hard, right? Uh, I think what you're referring to is like brand goodwill in that, right? Like like the customers actually enjoy the product that they're buying, right? Yeah. So in some businesses, it is literally impossible. Like for example, in a content site kind of business model where you're primarily sending people to other vendors through affiliate links or display ads, which those can be significant businesses. We've sold seven figure uh, businesses in that model. You just don't know unless you're building out an email list, which most of them don't, which shame on them. They should because email is very important, in my opinion. <laughs> Point for email list. Uh, <laughs> don't listen to Tim. Email is extremely important. <laughs> but but yeah, so content sites would be really difficult. And even like, say you were in e-commerce, if you were with Amazon FBA, it, like, yes, you have your reviews, though those can be faked, but you often don't have as much access to your customers as you think you would in that model. So yes, it could be really difficult. If someone wanted to prove like that their customers are uh, you know, loving what, what you're doing, then I think they need to make that part of their marketing uh, stuff. Like, so for example, for us, we try to get people to leave reviews on Trustpilot. We try to get people to leave reviews on Facebook, like any kind of reviews helps. And our business really is based on trust, right? Like that's a big ask, like show me your PNL and you might be able to sell with me like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like this is a lot. Uh, so it, it could be tough. Uh, if someone's trying to find out though, like say you're not the owner, you're looking at a business. I would look at things like on Reddit, on Quora, on Facebook groups. Like I would search all the different groups, uh, Hacker News, like any kind of entrepreneurial community that might be related around the business or even niche hobbies. So like if the business was, I don't know, about book binders, binding or something like that, like research that subreddit to see if anyone's talking about it, right? That's what I would recommend. And keep in mind, you're always going to have people who are like, 
I hate this company. They're the worst. So you, you don't want like the review, like you don't want to trust the ones that are super negative because those are probably trolls or like really unreasonable customers a lot of the time. But you don't want to necessarily let the five star ones shade like golden hue light on this business you're looking at. What you really want is that like three and a half star review because they like the product. It's mostly positive and they probably have constructive feedback that can improve the business, which is an opportunity for a buyer. Absolutely. Where can people uh, read more about you and uh, see also the journey? Uh, yeah, like where, where can they connect with me? Yeah, so it's super easy to connect with me. It's just Greg at EmpireFlippers.com. Uh, if you want to add me on Facebook or LinkedIn, I'm pretty sure my vanity URLs are Greg the Writer because I'm a big writing nerd. Uh, so feel free to add me on there. And if they add me on Facebook, apologies in advance. I write, I publish poetry on there. So don't like poetry, uh, probably add me on LinkedIn instead. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what are you excited about looking forward uh, with your business? I am very excited with where we're heading. Um, we just sold our first few eight-figure deals. So I think, and I've been saying this for a long time, but I'm pretty confident we could sell a $50 million business. And that, like, that's not going to happen in the short term, but we just sold, say, a $12 million business. I don't think a $20 million business is so far uh, behind the corner for us. So I, I am excited for us to getting up to that point of where we have a $50 million business. And in a broader view, I'm very excited to always bring the message that, hey, this asset class exists, right? Like for both the entrepreneurs who don't realize they could sell, because a lot of people don't, uh, especially in the digital online space, they don't realize what they built is actually worth something. And then also in the buyer space, people who are investing in real estate, stocks, et cetera. Like I'm really excited to bring the digital asset class into that conversation for people who are looking to build wealth. Yeah, so if somebody right now listening says, hmm, I, I wonder what, what my business is worth. Uh, how do you calculate a SaaS business or a service business in valuation? What are the criteria that create the multiple? Yeah, so obviously th those are going to be wildly two different ingredients <laughs> from service and SaaS. Service, by the, service businesses, by the way, they're absolutely the hardest business to sell. If you have a service business out there that you do want to sell, and say it's making, I don't know, between thirty dollars to $60,000 per month at least, what I would recommend is get on an exit planning call because each service business are so complex to set it up to be able to sell uh, because often the owner is like fulfilling everything themselves, all that kind of stuff. So I would definitely do an exit planning call with like either us or a competition or whatever. We both offer it for free, so it's no risk to you whether you sell with us or not. Um, in terms of a SaaS business, a big part of it is going to be MRR or MRR, monthly recurring revenue, right? The biggest mistake SaaS owners make, well, there's two, there, two major mistakes actually, but the first one is easier to solve. The first one is a lot of early stage SaaS companies, they'll do lifetime deals to like build up runway hype around the product. You should not do that because buyers are going to hate that, like absolutely hate that having to support this customer that's, uh, you know, a net negative in revenue over time, right? So what's better is doing annual packages if you want to build up that runway through quick revenue, but never uh, when you or when you do want to sell, get rid of all the annual recurring as much as you can, because you're going to be heavily devalued. 
uh, in your valuation if it's all ARR versus MRR, because buyers view that as too unpredictable. So that's one of the big takeaways. The other thing, and this hits all sellers, but I think it, it hits SaaS people especially hard, is a psychological thing that I call having emotional equity on your business. So a lot of people, when they build a business, it changes their life if it's successful, right? Like I can quit my main job, I can travel the world, spend more time with my family, all this cool stuff, right? Opens up the doors of possibilities for you a bit. But the problem is when you go to sell, because it did all this good stuff for you, you think, oh, I should get a gigantic exit. Like my business is definitely worth $5 million, even though the net profit justifies a 300K exit, right? But you know, in their head, they're like, they have this outsized valuation on it. So when they come onto our marketplace, either with our vetting team or with the buyers, they feel like the, it's almost insulting when a buyer gives them the offer because the buyer isn't calculating all that good stuff the business did for you, right? Like they're happy for you, but they're not going to judge your business based off that emotional equity. And I think that's extra prevalent in SaaS, especially because so many of them see these like incredible exits, like or incredible valuations, like Uber and all this stuff. They're like, and they don't realize like, hey man, you're three grand a month, little construction SaaS software that's been around for eight years probably is not worth the same kind of valuation as uber <laughs> you know uh so that's really tough for SaaS people i also the other thing uh and this is good news for SaaS people is a lot of SaaS owners who are in that kind of example i just gave they give up thinking that their SaaS is a failure not realizing that there are more buyers out there than vc firms like there are tons of investors that want to buy a SaaS business i was talking to one guy who had that exact kind of dilemma when I opened up to his eyes, like, you don't need VC to exit. He's like, what? Like, yeah, there's like, we have tons of buyers for SaaS businesses that are high quality. Uh, it blew his mind. So that's another thing for SaaS people. So cool. And uh, is there anything that I forgot to ask you? Mm, I can't, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Do, do you want, do you want to ask another question? It's up to you. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have one more. Who should be my oh, next guest? Yeah, right. Who should be your next? You should get Tim Solo out here and tell him that I chose him as uh, the top guy on my strategy thing and then talk about how I disagree with him on email marketing. Email. <laughs> yeah, Beautiful. Cool, controversial thing. <laughs> Thank you, Gregory, for being on the show, sharing your journey, your wisdom with us. Please come back soon. Thank you for having me. Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. Reach your ambitious goals with one-on-one -on -one sprint coach. We double your revenue.